Uh, welcome to Political OD episode 31. And uh, here with Owen, uh, there's been quite a bit happening uh, in the past few weeks since our last podcast. Uh, and I think we have to start with the resignation of Paul Given and the presented in news and by other parties as the collapse um, of Stormont and perhaps the end of the world. But in fact, it feels like everything is pretty much going on as it was before, as we ramp up towards an election in May. Yeah, I mean, how, how soon we forget that uh, we had three years without Stormont from 2017 to 2020 and life didn't grind to a halt. Uh, things were able to get on pretty much as normal. And, you know, this is the same. We're also on this occasion so close to an election that it was only a couple of weeks, really, that uh, not having the executive uh, a couple of weeks extra that we're, we're gaining or not, is the case, maybe. Part of uh, the hyperbole around this has been, of course, that I'm, I'm slightly bit confused by the like of Sinn Féin calling for an early election, but then saying, but we need to get all this legislation through because those seem to be quite contradictory positions, not for the first time with Sinn Féin, I suppose. In the same term, we, we see it being reported in the press. They, they seem to be swallowing lines without actually giving any consideration to what they're suggesting. Willing promoters of the idea that we suddenly have to rush to get 28 pieces of legislation through before the end of this mandate, uh, and that that's now impossible because Paul Given resigned. But if we looked at it, we've got exactly the same number of days as before uh, in terms of Stormont sitting, um, and we're told, oh, but you know this is now a disaster because we can't get 28 bills through. Well, how were you going to get 28 bills through with that number of days anyway? And then there's this, this storyline about you know, poor MLAs having to now sit, sit twice the number of days before the end of the mandate and might even have to do late night sittings um, <laughs> because of the pressure now to pass only a limited number of these bills. So we're now being told we're needing twice the time to do less work than we would have been able to do had Paul Given not resigned. And I'm finding this whole storyline that is unquestioningly uh, being presented by the press just to not make any sense. Yeah, I mean, uh, for a start, I don't think if there were 28 bills waiting to be considered, we weren't going to get 28 bills before before the election campaign um, happened anyway. Secondly, it, it kind of supposes that you should gauge your success and how much legislation you get passed. To me, actually, the idea that Stormont's going to suddenly rush through 28 pieces of legislation actually sends a shiver down my spine because oh. I have no faith that this will be properly thought through necessary or indeed well-drafted legislation. A lot of the things that they are sort of planning to do seem to be, you know, kind of eye-catching, but possibly unnecessary or, or, or kind of, um, you know, fairly marginal type, types of preoccupations. So, you know, the, the, the idea that um, suddenly in the last 15 days of the mandate that Stormont was going to do all this amazingly useful work that it hadn't 
done during the rest of the time. It's just it's risable. Uh, I mean the 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 uh, the impression from the the bills that have been passed quite you know well not quite quickly but passed within the past week. Um, if that's an example of priorities, I'm I'm suspecting that the priorities are going to be geared around which bills will provide the best photo opportunities for the ministers involved. Of course, where we had the absurdity the other week of uh, a Green Party member, I think it was the leader. Uh, no, is she a leader anymore? Can't remember. Yes, I think she is the leader. She, yeah. You know, not being able to actually move the amendment that she brought to the assembly because she was outside having a photo op. Faintly absurd. Well, I've always sort of felt that we've got an unspoken contract with uh, the politicians at Stormont, and that's that, you know, we can get on with the rest of their lives and they'll get on with whatever they're doing up there and it won't affect us too much and, you know, we won't complain too much that they're up there. It keeps them out of bother and it sort of brings a certain amount of stability to society and whatever else. But, I mean, we've just gone through a period um, when that, couldn't be said when people in, in Stormont at the Assembly have been dictating what we can do in our own lives on a day-to-day basis. So, you know, this idea that, that Stormont is either benign or beneficial, I, I just don't buy it. I mean, I've, I've always felt that devolution has been a disaster for the union, and I feel that unionists should be reluctant devolutionists rather than, uh, you know, keen devolutionists. And yes, we, we probably don't have... Um, have any choice but to to sort of uh, accept that there's going to be some kind of devolved uh, institutions, but you know that that doesn't mean that they're necessarily a good thing or that they're that they're well, benefits or go without saying. I, th- I think on that point, you the point about you the the scrutiny and the role of 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 MLAs, you know, the very ones that are now telling us how important they are singularly failed to raise any complaint about restrictions being forced through at the behest of an executive without any real scrutiny. In fact, I think at one point, were they not debating restrictions that had already been removed by the executive by the time they were they were actually sitting down talking about the ones before, going through the motions, but they weren't actually doing anything effective or useful. Yeah, we had that theatre of the absurd where the, these debates were happening several weeks after the restrictions were uh, implemented and sometimes after things had moved on to another kind of set of restrictions. Yeah. So, um, what the merit of that was, what whether it was a good use of people's time, it just, it, I mean, it, it pretty much sums up. But they didn't complain. That's my point. Well, you know, They, they no, didn't no. turn around and say, this shouldn't be happening. And that's because in our system, the five executive parties would not allow their people to actually complain in that way. And that's the, there is no accountability. There is no effective scrutiny of what is being put through up there. Yeah, well, that's entirely right. And as flawed as uh, national politics uh, are and as neutered as the House of Commons has become, it does provide a balance to the executive at some level and uh, scrutiny of what the executive's doing. And that's just not the case in Northern Ireland. I mean, there's perhaps one MLA in Stormont who's trying to perform that uh, job all by himself. It's just not a, it's not an accountable system. And when it comes to a halt, as it has over the past week, or come partly to a halt anyway, because 
um, the, the power share, the, the executive office has, has, has fallen, although ministers are still in place and there's still attempts to hold meetings and, and, and whatever else. Um, you know, you see that reflected in the kind of lack of, uh, of uh, impact that it has on, on people on a day to day basis. So therefore, you know, don't let us go through this sort of festival of the or theater of the absurd where we try and and uh, claim that this is going to be something that is is going to bring life in Northern Ireland to a juddering halt because it clearly isn't. Uh, Paul Kevin's resignation, I mean, that came hot on the heels of Edwin Poots basically trying to stop checks happening at uh, the ports of entry in Northern Ireland in respect of the protocol. Um, some people were linking this as a, you know, a, a grand plan. Seemed to be more spur of the moment in terms of Givens' resignation. And Poots' uh, thing was warned for about a month. So if there was a plan, it was merely that there was going to be a series of activities that would basically force the protocol onto the agenda. The bigger question then is, is it coordinated with the Conservatives? If, the, if it were coordinated with the Conservatives, I think the DUP will have learned nothing of the past five years, that you basically can't trust a Tory uh, in politically because they'll do whatever that is best for the Conservative Party. So I, I don't get a sense that it's coordinated with Westminster. But if you're going to strike and try and, and put pressure on protocol negotiations and hopefully try to bring them to some point uh, of decision. And if, if it simply drags on, it's really the point is that everybody's happy with nothing happening. Uh, and that we're going to have this ambiguous state of being neither in nor out of a protocol. It was a timing that had to happen. But also there, were, there was the EU Commission uh, paper uh, that actually did a, a report on current uh, checks. Um, and it just seems that there's, there's no effective system for control at Northern Ireland ports really worth much at the moment. Partly that's down to Poots uh, stopping recruitment um, for um, the checks which means they don't have enough people to do the checks. And also he won't build any new buildings. So they're still in temporary accommodation, which aren't really up to much. So uh, they've certainly frustrated um, the checks to date. And he's now moved to basically try and stop the checks. Now, I know your position on is he shouldn't have done it in the first place. They should have stopped it in 2020. But they've barely got up and running in 2020, have they? Well, you know, I think that's actually part of the problem because um, in 2020, we'd seen this sort of obscenely uh, hasty rush back to government with Sinn Féin, giving them you know, concessions that, that didn't really need to be conceded uh, in order to sign the new decade, new approach deal. And at the time, I, I remember chatting to you and, 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 and we were quite scathing about that deal and said that it offered really nothing substantive to unionists and and um, certainly all the kind of meaningful concessions were to Sinn Féin and there were issues with the way that had been concocted uh, with the Irish government in terms of the strands of the Good Friday 
agreement and everything else. And I mean, that this is something that would concern me again. It's, it's unionists sort of, uh, that, that their case to get Stormont back in, their desperation to get uh, Stormont back up and running again. And we've really, if this is going to be successful by the DUP this time on any level, they've got to not do that again, where, you know, some even if we get a deal concocted in the protocol, where suddenly after the election, they're uh, desperate to get back to their offices and get back to their um, get back to their ministerial posts. And therefore they get drawn into a negotiation with Sinn Féin, where once again, Sinn Féin make demands and where once again, uh, they get something out of that process because that just simply cannot happen. And I feel, that, you know, regardless of the fact that Stormont had just got up and running again, that unionist ministers should not have been implementing an Irish sea border that separated us politically and economically from the rest of the United Kingdom. And that was the moment, um, that was the moment to resign. You know, the, the, Edwin Pitt should have been, first, first of all, refusing to implement those checks and that border. And then uh, if he was going to be forced to do so that was that that was the moment to walk out of the executive and I do you know I I take your point that in the interim he's done some things to try and sort of impede the operation of that border but it hasn't prevented it from doing 20% of the checks in the whole European Union so it has been drastic enough even if it isn't drastic enough for the European Union and drastic enough for the kind of rigorous implementers that in Northern Ireland will seem to uh, agree to any, any pain that the EU inflicts on this province just so long as they can be seen to be supportive of Brussels? Well, I, th I think there's two things. First of all, uh, if we take the, the checks issue, I mean, according to the EU report, it's only about 30%. The 20, that 20% of the checks only represent 30% of the checks that ought to be happening now when we're only actually looking at around 20% of the of the protocol operational. I think it's it's between 80 and 90% of, of the protocol hasn't even been uh, brought into being uh, as yet in terms of the grace periods and, and, and all these other things. And that includes obviously checking luggage um, at, um, at uh, ports of entry. For your lunchbox. Yeah. Uh, making sure that your, you know, uh, all the, all your domestic pets are checked at the border, which they're currently not at the moment. Also, that uh, for some reason, all goods have to be labelled. Uh, this may only be marketed in Northern Ireland. Uh, how that stops a uh, sausage being sold, marketed only in Northern Ireland, being sold in Asda in Straban and not making its way over to the border delivered. I'm afraid that that is slightly beyond me, but it seems to be enough for the EU, which does go back to a lot of this is theatre. But the most worrying thing about the EU's uh, document was basically it certainly sees Northern Ireland as part of its territory. Uh, it, it, in its recommendations, it this talks about goods moving from Great Britain into the EU SPS via border control posts in Northern Ireland. I mean, it's quite clearly that it's uh, you know, Northern Ireland is part of EU territory because they've got an economic hook into us. Yeah, and I mean, one of the most absurd aspects of this whole affair has been the 
people who all along have been claiming that this this protocol doesn't have constitutional implica implications when in fact the very essence of the issues that unionists have with it are constitutional the fact that it um, puts Northern Ireland uh, in the in the EU's um, under the EU's auspices in, in terms of the economy in terms of single market rules and everything else you know I always argued that from my point of view even if this did have a, immense benefits for Northern Ireland it still wasn't acceptable yeah. because it uh, was unaccountably and without any kind of democratic involvement at all wrenching Northern Ireland out of the Europe uh, out, out of the United Kingdom and putting it under the the tutelage of the the European Union and on no way can it, particularly in a, in a part of the world that has within relatively recent times and, and certainly within both of our lifetimes had serious on uh, social and political unrest uh, because of disputes about the constitution you just do not do not uh, show that kind of irresponsibility when you're dealing with a place that has the past that we have part of me is 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 a bit confused by the austria union's position on this which seems to be blaming the dup for brexit but also then that um, saying we, we don't want a protocol, but we want a protocol that isn't a protocol. And we've put forward ideas. So they, they go back to somehow saying, we need to be negotiating. Well, sorry, but you're not party to the negotiation. That's UK and, and uh, EU. If, if you wanted to say we need it, a better option, surely else union's position would be better rolling in behind the command paper that was presented by David Frost last year, that would at least be an honest position of backing the UK government in its attempts to basically uh, reform the, the, the protocol into a manageable um, uh, process. Well, you know, I, I believe at the time the Ulster Unionist Party did express support for the command paper. And I mean, the command paper was a perfectly reasonable document and probably um, you know, represented the least that unionists should be demanding. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the fact remains that the command paper has been roundly rejected by the EU, even though it put forward, you know, perfectly practical, perfectly reasonable uh, propositions. And what, where, do we, where do we go from there? It's okay for the Ulster Unionist Party to say we must keep talking, we must keep, uh, keep negotiating and that the DUP are going to achieve nothing by doing this but how are they going to escalate this or are they just going to ultimately say that we have to accept this i mean that's kind of the sense that i'm getting yeah and also uh kind of congruent with the type of people that uh doug Beattie is surrounding himself with you know in marshall and, and, and people like this and and some of the things even you know reg mp has been a great uh, has offered a great critique uh, of what's happened with the protocol throughout all of this, but he's kind of moving toward that position. So that would concern me. And the Ulster Unionist Party has to remain focused on the fact that all of the instability and the crisis in Northern Ireland is caused by the protocol and not to get distracted by its intra-unionist rivalry with the DUP. And I know that that's, uh, I, I know they have, um, valid criticisms of, of the, the DUP and how things have happened. But, you know, a lot of that is 
Now, although it's what it's water under the bridge, and, and while we can't ignore it, we have the problems that we have. So, you know, it, it, it's not enough to go into an election campaign shouting at the DUP for, in Doug Beatty's kind of terms, bringing down Stormont and bringing instability in Northern Ireland. But that instability was caused by a protocol that the Ulster Unionist Party is supposed to oppose. Uh, well, it is supposed to oppose, but again, it comes back to exactly how it, well, it comes back to your point on, on post-election. What is the Ulster Unionist Party going to be like in terms of their approach to the next executive, particularly if it gets into a whole round of negotiations, as these things, things seem to be? I mean, do they, with the DUP, simply sit back and say there can be no executive while the protocol exists? And we won't even start talking about a programme of government until the protocol is, is dealt with, because surely the protection of the union in the first instance is the priority of any unionist party. Uh, I just don't see how, without dealing with the protocol, you can even think about rebuilding Stormont. Uh, yeah. or have a Stormont executive? Because what basis would that be on, that you muddle along with the protocol and the Northern Ireland drifting out of the Union slowly but surely? For a start, I don't think that the UUP will even entertain the idea of uh, standing aside from the executive until the protocol is, is gone. And I think it finds itself in a paradoxical sort of position. And I suppose that paradox is partly due to the system at Stormont um, where we have parties sort of acting as an opposition but not being in opposition. I mean, at one point we looked as if we might be moving towards solving that and the Ulster Unionist Party would be part of that. But again, they've provided uh, over the years uh, since the St Andrews Agreement and actually over the years since the DUP became the largest unionist party, they've kind of provided a critique of what's going wrong at the executive and, you know, think back to Sir Reg MP calling it a huckster's yeah. shop and all of this kind of thing. And, and you know, even just before Christmas, I, th I think we actually discussed it where Doug Beatty was saying it wasn't working. It was dysfunctional. It couldn't go on like this. We needed to reform it drastically. But then whenever there's a threat to the system as it has been operating, he portrays it as a great disaster. You know, it has to be one or the other. So they, they, the Ulster Unionists have, have got themselves in this kind of slightly conflicted position where they're saying that power sharing is not working, that it needs to be changed, but yet they seem so committed to the institutions and to the, the sort of retention of those institutions in whatever circumstances, no matter whatever's happening, that they seem to be, you know, among the greatest supporters of, of power sharing as it currently operates. So I, I, I think they're going to have to, it's going to be difficult, but they have to hone that message into something that makes a little more sense because at, at the moment, and, you know, I, I don't want to, again, be sort of negative about the current leader and everything else, but there's just a confusion there where, where they're trying to be all things to all people and trying to, balance all kind of all kinds of sort of slightly conflicting messages and I think it's it's a sort of day-to-day -day thing today we'll say this there, there's been this incident where we're going to be um, you know progressive today then the next day we'll criticize the executive the following day 
will say how important it is for the prosperity of Northern Ireland. And none of it really makes any sense. It's all sort of just shooting from the hip all the time. Well, I think that's also quite clear in, in Robin Swan's approach to the health service, where you know, it's sort of like eight weeks to save the NHS again. That, that old line, um, because he may not have a budget you know, in eight weeks' time. Well, he has got a budget. And there's a pile of money coming in from London based on Barnet because of the... the um, the national insurance increase, but also because there's catch up after COVID funding coming in to, to try and reduce waiting lists and, and improve health outcomes uh, post COVID. That's a, that's a pile of money, which was set in the budget uh, that, and that is out for consultation. But quite rightly, the DUP said, hang on a minute, boys, you've got a budget, but what are you spending on it? How are you spending it on? Uh, and there is no plan. I mean, there's strategies, but strategies are like they're surge strategy or plan that they had for the the care homes uh in in uh in 2020 but the the other aspect is that uh, uh, from what i understand a lot of the the uh, stretched um staffing and it is a staffing issue uh, that is predominantly the problem in the end just at the moment because they brought army in basically as cheap agency nurses from what i can work out that is because Despite um, the restrictions, and these are restrictions that he can change, um, health workers have to isolate 10 days, even if a member of their family uh, has come down with COVID, they're not allowed to go back to work, although they can live their lives and do whatever else they want outside of the workplace. Would that be fair? Yeah, I think this is one of the issues that um, for the rest of society, in order to try and get us back into slightly more even footing and get people into their jobs and everything else, we relax those rules on, on self-isolation. So you're supposed to be able to, to take a lateral flow test. But the, the health trusts in Northern Ireland haven't followed uh, that relaxation and they're still operating the system whereby staff have to isolate for 10 days if they're a contact. So it's no wonder that they're running into staff problems and a lot of these medics are, are sitting at, at home, uh, you know, twiddling their thumbs and quite frustrated because their colleagues are under enormous pressure and they can't make it into work even though they're well and, and, and able. You know, you, you can understand to an extent why there's that kind of mentality after so, so much time where we've been, we've kind of been seeing this as something that we have to that we have to do where, where we restrict the spread of the disease by staying in, in our homes but as omicron becomes the, the, the sort of chief variant and we know that it's not as serious and that the pressures in icu and everything else are, are easing we've also got to take into account that having hospitals understaffed is a safety issue until the health trusts or Robin Swan or whoever starts to kind of uh, look at things like that, there's not going to be a drastic improvement. Uh, bringing in the military just, you know, to, to fill staffing gaps is not a, a long-term solution and nor is it really a solution that you should be looking at outside times of, of extreme crisis. And I mean, I, I think you've kind of hinted at it as well that Robin Swan talks about strategies. He talks about getting down waiting lists and all the rest of it. But I mean, I don't get a sense that there's any real plan there other than we'll spend more money on this and it'll maybe improve. Um, we haven't seen the kind of spin on the Donaldson report or whatever that mm. you'd like to see, the kind, of, the, the kind of big plan. And I know that he's been 
busy and he's been spending most of his time um, he's been spending most of his time fighting crises, but surely in the background, he would at least be talking about this, at least sort of outlining his kind of broader thinking. And he hasn't he hasn't done that unless I've missed it, unless, you know, there's been all of these sort of big picture interviews that Robin Swan's been doing that I haven't managed to hear. I, th- I think the, the, the answer uh, to COVID was largely about uh, imposing restrictions on the general public, you know, that was where the weight um, of the crisis was placed on us. Uh, it wasn't placed uh, within the management of, of the health service beyond uh, the staffing issues, which no doubt was challenging. But that's not that's an operational issue that beyond getting reports, I don't think uh, Robin Swan would be handling day to day. Uh, and that central administration of the health department should have been looking at the big plan, particularly as uh, the like of the, the additional funding from the NI uptake uh, has been uh, well known now for months. Surely they could have dusted down a plan of sorts that would have been sitting there. This, the crisis in the health service has been there since 2019 and before and long before. But you know, they've known about this. This isn't something that has just cropped up. Uh, I think COVID is a useful excuse to say, oh, we've been too busy to do anything, but I'm not sure that they have the capacity. It struck me also this past week when you know, I was sent a copy of a, a PricewaterhouseCoopers report. I don't want to have a go at PricewaterhouseCoopers in, in particular, but but it was a, a sort of a, a report on economic outlook and priorities for Northern Ireland about uh, you know, how all the you know, great phrases, performance, prospects, people, productivity, education, skills, trade investment, climate energy, uh, energy. But, you know, the big thing that wasn't in the report is the elephant in the room, which is the big infrastructure issues that have to be dealt with. Uh, Northern Ireland Water apparently has run out of money in the past few uh, months, possibly because of the high cost of energy in, in terms of its operation. We have got a big infrastructure crisis coming down the line because you can't build substantial new development in places like Londonderry, Belfast is under strain because the water system simply will not, wastewater system simply will not cope. We know there are energy issues out there, interconnectors, networks. Um, you know, we have to run a coal fire power station because the wind stopped last summer. You know, we've put so much into renewables, but we haven't put enough into the what happens when the wind doesn't blow. You know, they're all running around for their photo ops and their, their big strategy announcements and how much money they're giving to this and how much money they're giving to that. Great. But there are big issues out there and Stormont has not delivered on the things that are going to matter, not just to this generation, but the next generation. Yes, this is a long-standing issue in, in Northern Ireland with the infrastructure and with and with government in the, in the executive. And the fact is that we still have many sort of outstanding infrastructure projects, whether they be um, roads and, and, and all the rest of it, but the, those underlying things about water and electricity haven't been uh, even looked at as, as, as far as I can tell. I said the biggest failure of Stormont is to, to never really deal with the big problems coming down the line. Everything is for that Twitter moment. Everything is for that next photo op. Everything is for how it's going to look in the next social media broadcast, which is why 
you so many of them have to read their stuff out because it's a pre-prepared text that they'll clip. Your know, politics is becoming theater um, rather than actually uh, dealing with the fundamentals that make this a good place to live, a good place to do business. Yeah, absolutely. And it would be wrong to say that that's only something that's happening at Stormont because it's happening nationwide and indeed beyond that. But because of our particular problems and because of our particular form of uh, power sharing, it seems to be exacerbated and it doesn't seem to be a, a sort of uh, a punishment for that. You, you can be irresponsible uh, without any sort of sanction. And you'll still be in the executive. And you'll still be in the executive because the executive is mandatory. Yeah. All right. Well, um, we'll catch up again. Uh, I think things are, I don't know if things are going to move at an incredible pace. A lot's happened in the past few weeks, but I get the impression not a lot is going to happen in the next few. I suppose the next kind of focus will be the fact that we're going to pass the end of February, potentially with no agreement on the Northern Ireland Protocol. And then, you know, we, we can all... Uh, start into an acrimonious uh, election campaign. Well, I think that's a good time to come back and talk about the election campaign that we're about to head into. Absolutely. Why not? All right. Speak soon. Bye now.